Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 56 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. This episode is brought to you by my friends at Unsettled. Unsettled is a 30-day co-working retreat experience for entrepreneurs, creatives, freelancers, and folks going through intentional transitions. They lead retreats in some of the most inspiring destinations in the world, Cape Town, Barcelona, Bali, just to name a few. I did uh, Medellin in Colombia with them last year, and it was everything I could have imagined. Beautiful apartment, great co-working space, incredible community, and you get to be a part of their global community that they've created, and lots of incredible local connections connections and experiences. Go to beunsettled.co slash Nathan and they're going to give you $100 off. So do yourself a favor, beunsettled.co slash Nathan and prepare for one of the best months of your life. What's up, you beautiful people? Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're having a fantastic week as always. Just returning from sailing in the Virgin Islands, I have a new love and that love is called sailing. And man, did I have a good week. 37 entrepreneurs, four yachts, sailing the Virgin Islands. It was uh, absolutely spectacular and completely disconnected for the week. No phone, no laptop, nothing. And man, it has been a while since I've done that. Uh, It's amazing what comes out of that. You know, we get so uh, attached to our laptops and our phones that, man, I guess uh, a whole new level of connection with the, the people on the trip. Just the ability to switch off, uh, give your brain a rest, not be constantly activated and making decisions and stimulated by the phone. It was uh, a truly restful experience for me, one I'm very grateful for. It's also stimulated something in me. You know, I love doing these retreats for the entrepreneurs of my community. And I thought, man, I would love to do a sailing retreat for some of the entrepreneurs that I work with. So watch this space. I'm thinking of doing something with my uh, colleague Derek in August. We're thinking of doing a sailing trip for a week around uh, the Greek islands with uh, a handful of entrepreneurs. So if that interests you, you know, come and uh, hang out, take some time away from your business, your life, and just hang out with us, have a good time and, and do some development work on the boat. If that interests you, reach out, give me a message, let me know you're interested and I'll see if we can fit you in if there's enough people that are keen to do that. But it certainly got me excited because I uh, felt the effects firsthand of how transformative that experience can be. Continuing the last few conversations around love and connection as we wrap up that theme for the month, spoke with Kyle Benson on Facebook Live on Monday. And wow, Kyle was so informative. He's so articulate. This is his area of expertise. He works in a thing called the Love Lab at uh, one of the universities in Seattle, which is a place where they literally study couples interacting in a lab. And man, have they had some incredible insights from that research. So uh, Kyle takes me through all the different things from kind of a scientific point of view, what we know, uh, what we've learned, what we've studied uh, over the past few decades that can actually help you to have a better relationship with your partner. So enjoy this one. I certainly had a great time talking to Kyle. So enjoy this very personal conversation with the powerful Kyle Benson. Hey guys, how are you doing? Hope you're having a great start to the week so far. I'm here with Kyle Benson. Kyle, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you here. I just got back from a week of sailing in the Virgin Islands, so it's been a bit of a slow start for me today, (laughs) getting back into work and getting back into this. I'm just getting my head around everything. How's your week been so far? It's been crazy busy. Just got back from a wedding and kind of getting back in the groove of working with clients and everything else, so it's been really busy. Yeah, cool. 
So we've had a theme over the last month, a little bit over a month about love and connection on the podcast, on these Facebook lives. And we've been talking to different people about sex and intimacy and love and everything. And I was excited to connect with you because this is kind of your business, right? This is what you've committed your life to learning about. Yeah, it's my thing. Yeah. But from a slightly different angle, can you explain, you know, if someone says, what do you do? How do you explain that, Carl? Uh, yeah. So I do relationship coaching. I work with couples and we're really focused on kind of working either with couples who have a lot of conflict and kind of really reconnecting them and really giving them tools to work through their problems. Often couples have issues because they feel really isolated because they actually don't have a way of talking about their issues. And so then they get in these really toxic patterns where they're blaming each other or they're completely withdrawing and it just makes a big mess of things. And so I really help couples by teaching them the skills to communicate and connect and really build that more intimate, loving relationship. Nice. And this is something that we're not really taught how to do. So most people aren't equipped with these kind of skills, right? No, I mean, it's, it's kind of odd that we don't have something like that in our school of how to communicate, how to express our feelings, how to ask for what we need in a non-demanding way and, and really kind of bridge the gap between one person to another. I mean, we have communication classes, but they don't go into the details of how to deal with stuff, particularly in intimate relationships, because that's where we most often get most triggered. And so that's really kind of what I help couples do and also what I teach individuals as well. Yeah, it's a big thing. I always say to people, like the, the place where you can do the most personal growth is usually in a relationship because there's no hiding, right? Like most people we can hide from eventually, but in a relationship, you get to a point where you can't hide and yeah. everything's going to come out. And that's what's so fun and difficult about working with couples is everything's right in the room. You know, you're dealing with it in the moment, the interactions, the assumptions, the expectations, everything is just right there. And it's the mess is you're cleaning it up right there in the moment. And that's kind of why I love the work so much too. I mean, it's, it's tough. It's, you know, you got your insecurities, your fears, the beliefs you have about your partner, kind of the assumptions you might have that really impacts your relationship in a lot of different ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're going to give us some great tips and advice, no doubt. We'll come back to that. Uh, so I'll just be nice to plant the seed about what's coming. If anybody that's listening, if you want to check in, if you want to ask questions of Kyle, if you want to contribute anything, just leave a comment as we go. But Kyle, I want to just dive a little bit deeper into your history. So how you got into this work and you know where you're from and what are some of the, the highlights of your life? Yeah, I think my history... Obviously, a lot of people kind of probably like you, we get into the work we're doing because of our own personal struggles. Um, Never. <laughs> mine, mine really started kind of about five years ago. I was in a pretty unhealthy relationship, kind of where I was really chasing after my partner and trying to earn her affection and just desperately wanted love and connection. And at the same time, I was with a partner who wasn't really someone I could trust or really build that relationship with. And what I noticed I did is I continued to put a lot more effort into that, became really insecure. And one of the ways I dealt with that insecurity is I created this odd belief that, okay, well, now if I just go build a, a really successful business, then she'll finally love me. And so I started working 100 hours a week. I was working a full-time job. I was also building my own business. I was going actually fairly well. And then I got really sick. And uh, that totally just blew up my life. I had health issues. I had, I don't know if you've ever heard of psoriasis but it's this autoimmune disease that's on your skin. And all of a sudden, within three to six months, I had 312 spots all over my body. I couldn't walk for more than half a block with wanting to pass out. Couldn't eat like practically a lot of the foods based on what the doctors were saying. 
And it was just a, a moment in time where I was like, how on earth did I get here? And what I realized, I was sitting down in a chair, kind of just really depressed and thought to myself, what happened? And for some reason, my focus turned to my relationships and particularly my role in my relationships. And so I started reading books, you know, from John Gottman or Sue Johnson and kind of those marriage experts and love experts. And next thing I knew, I was writing about it. Then I had some friends talking to me about it. Publications picked up my content. Now I'm doing what I'm doing now. Interesting. And so that link, it's, it's cool that you were able to have the awareness to point out the link between the relationship, the insecurity, and then pouring yourself into another area. Is that common from what you see? I think our relationships and how we see ourselves uh, really impact all areas of our lives. There's a lot of different theories that talk about that, and we can nerd on that if you want. But just in the short, right, there's always this, like, how if people interact with us and how they respond to us, and mostly how we interpret that defines ourselves. And so, you know, an interaction with someone who is unavailable, who doesn't connect with you as much as you want, or is sometimes available, but sometimes not, we often internalize some messages about that. And so with a partner who, you know, you might say connects with you sometimes, but then doesn't connect to you the other times, it's a really mixed signal of, okay, what do I do? How do I respond to that? And repeated experiences of that make you feel like, okay, there's something wrong with me that's causing this person to come close and then also push me away. And so there's a lot in that, but that's kind of the basic gist of it. And that's what I came to realize is the way I behaved in my relationships actually created kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in my relationships. And so by being passive or uh, manipulative in certain ways or, or stooping through my partner's phone to get the reassurance that she was committed to me, often led to more fights or other things. And I was using kind of these behaviors that I would hope would get me what I wanted, but often didn't honor myself or didn't honor my needs. And that was actually the reason I had the relationships that I had. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I know for myself as well, you sometimes find yourself at that point doing things that aren't you. Right. Totally. And, and you you wouldn't think of yourself as like an insecure person or a, you know, someone that would go through someone's phone, but all of a sudden you're going, why am I doing this? Right. I always talk about it. It's kind of like you're getting hijacked, right? You're, you're or kidnapped. That's how I like to put it, right? It's like a bag goes over your head and you don't know what's going on and you're hyper-focused on your partner. You're consumed by it. You can't work. And this is, this is called kind of, in essence, that's what happens when your attachment system gets activated. It gets hyper-focused on, I need to connect with my partner. They're the person who keeps me safe. And this is kind of something from evolution and a whole bunch of research. And that was what's going on for me. I was working a ton, but I was constantly focusing on my partner. I dropped my friends at, you know, the tip of a hat, was doing everything to make this relationship work. And what I realized is actually doing that is part of the reason why my relationship didn't work. Yeah, it's so interesting. And so where did you go from that point? So when you started having these realizations, how did you you just end the relationship immediately? Uh, my health issues kind of caused me in my relationship. So that was a little bit of a benefit because I literally couldn't do anything. And I kind of just shut off from the world. I really, in those moments, you know, looking at my skin and going through what I was going through, I hated my life. And so I didn't want to be around anyone. And so that kind of gave me the distance to start to research and nerd out on kind of this other stuff and get the support I needed to grow. And so I started working with therapists. I started working with coaches and I as I started reading books, particularly, there's a book called Attached by Amir Levine and Rachel Heller, and then Dr. John Gottman's book called What Makes Love Last. Those two books really kind of set me up on a journey of 
okay, how do I become a partner that's secure, that can express my needs openly and can actually take the feedback from my partner of whether they're the type of person who I want to have a relationship with. And so if they're not going to honor my needs, if they're going to dismiss them or disrespect them, I also get the choice to continue into that relationship and accept that that's what they're going to do. Or I can actually step away from that relationship and say, you know what, that person doesn't care about my needs and my needs matter. And so I'm going to end this relationship and go look for someone who will. That part, I think, is actually the hardest part of actually Mm. changing relationships because especially when you love someone, you know, even if they kind of treat you that way, it's really hard to let go of that. Well, it's very rare that it's black and white. Right, totally. And it's very rare that you may have someone that you love that is not right for you or that is not in the right place. You can be conflicting messages. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and like, again, like I said, sometimes they're close, sometimes they're far away and you're not sure, right? You're really trying to figure out how do I make this work? And I get emails from people all the time. All right, this person, you know, they, they come close to me and they're connecting and we're having good moments. And all of a sudden I'm the bad guy. I'm in a committed relationship with the person they're talking to me really mean. They're really uh, aggressive. Sometimes, you know, they distance themselves. And I don't see them for a few days. They don't even respond to my text messages. What the heck's going on here? And one of the things, dynamics that I'm kind of highlighting is I call it roller coaster relationship, where you get these amazing highs of closeness, but you also get the lows of disconnection, the distance, miscommunication, and other things that make the relationship really unstable. Yeah, and you talked about before you said you mentioned the attachment system or that kind of evolutionary part of it. Can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah. So the attachment system, every person has an attachment system and kind of what it is, it's a system that has really allowed us to survive. In essence, what happens is we, our attachment system becomes activated when we feel some sense of threat, whether that is in our bond in the relationship or in the outside world. For example, if you get in a car wreck, right? Who's the first person you're bound to call? Partner or someone you love, right? Totally, right? It's you want that reassurance, you want that connection, and that actually helps regulate your attachment system. And so when you get that reassurance, when you get that feedback, especially at a young age in your childhood, that allows you to, as an adult, reach out for what you need, ask for what you need in a relationship, and take those risks to build a more secure relationship and be really authentic to yourself. Now, if you have a childhood where your parent is uh, kind of available sometimes and really connecting and other times or emotional and you actually have to comfort them, you sometimes become the parent or you sometimes start to take on a role that as a child, you're not supposed to really take on. Mm. And so in adult relationships, you might overfunction in the relationship. You might be doing too much in the relationship. You might give too much. And so that dynamic shows up in your adult relationship. And what happens is, When there's a threat or disconnection in the relationship, that attachment system that dealt with that kind of that parent who was sometimes available and sometimes not is really anxious. And that's what's called an anxious Mm. attachment style. And when they become an adult, what they do is they, their minds get consumed about the relationship and they start actually degrading themselves and then kind of highlighting the positive of their partner. So they're not getting a realistic picture of the relationship. And what that motivates them to do is the attachment system motivates them to then start to seek closeness and connection with their partner. And so it kind of is like this alarm system that goes off and then gets you to go and try to reconnect with your partner. And sometimes the way you do that, which I was talking about the the zooming through the phone and those other things, 
those are protest behaviors and they're really ineffective in actually getting what you want. But if you have little experience of actually saying the things you need and getting a positive response, you're going to move towards that protest type of behavior to try to get your needs met. And so in your adult relationships, you know, when I work with those clients who are anxious, I really help them start to behave in those more secure ways where they're honoring their needs, despite the fear of, oh my gosh, if I do this, I might get rejected or, oh my gosh, if I do this, it's not going to go well. And those beliefs were most likely developed in childhood. And that's kind of a little bit of how the attachment system works. And there's really kind of the summarize, there's really four different attachment styles, but there's really three main ones. And the two ones that often cause the biggest issues are the anxious attachment style and the avoidant attachment style. Do you know what those are? Tell me more. Yeah. So if we look at attachment, it's kind of on a spectrum, right? And so there's like a big spectrum that goes this way. And so there's anxiety on one side and avoidance on the other side. A person who is secure, you know, kind of like that idolized partner kind of sits in the middle. They're able to be anxious sometimes and pursue after the partner enough to get the reassurance they need in a very secure way. They're able to take distance and be independent and comfort themselves when need be. Now, Is that sort of the healthiest place to be, you would say? That's what that's what we talk about when we're talking about secure attachment. It's kind of right in that middle. Um, right. Again, we're talking about a spectrum. Not everyone falls right in the middle. Sometimes they're a little more anxious. Sometimes they're a little sure. more anxious. But it's when we get to the extremes that we have a lot of issues. And so if you have a partner who's highly anxious, they tend to be like that clingy, needy partner. But then you got the partner who's avoided, who's, oh, I'm super independent. You know, I'm going to do everything on my own. I don't care what you say. You know, I'm going to do what's best for me. And those kind of dynamics, they create that roller coaster relationship where this partner is really chasing after that distancer and that distancer is actually going farther away. And so they're both kind of in this toxic, nasty dance where they're not meeting each other's needs. And that's where the relationships become really tough because they don't have the communication skills or the tools to start to go, okay, hold on, what's going on here and change that pattern. And typically the, the clingy, needy partner that we blame as, as having been really critical or demanding just needs a different way of, of approaching that kind of the distancer partner. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes on in that dynamic and just one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that distancer, often the reason they're distancing is because they don't know how to reconnect or how to kind of repair the relationship. And their approach of distancing is, okay, if I distance, if I avoid this long enough, then things might go back to being normal because that's what they grew up with. Things were swept under the rug. And so that's what they try to do. And so their distancing often is an approach to save the relationship. The clean person, the needy person who pursues or chases after their partner is often doing the same thing. Well, if I make another attempt, if I reach out one more time, if I pursue them, if I become critical, then maybe they're finally going to turn around and we're going to connect. But because they're doing this in a way that's not, they're not sitting down and talking about it. They don't have a way to express their feelings. They often become really blaming, critical, disrespectful, and defensive. And as you know, kind of any of those patterns that show up make it really tough to connect. Yeah, that's brilliant analysis. So the, the two parts I heard is one, from whatever our relationship may have been with our parents, we develop a way of being in relationship. And then two, there's the response to that way of being. So right. we're the distancer, and then how do we deal with the fact that we're a distancer? Right. And and there's a one of my other therapists, Stan Tacken, he always talks about how do you start to work with these differences and actually become experts on each other? 
you know, we each have our ways of regulating ourselves, our self-soothing. We have ways of expressing our communication styles. How do you become an expert on yourself and then help your partner become an expert on you and vice versa, right? If they can understand themselves at a deep level, they can then help teach you how to be a better partner for them. And that's really kind of what I do with the couples I work with. Yeah, well, that, that was sort of my next question is, is where do you start? Do you start with working on, it sounds like you start with working on the communication part of it as opposed to, okay, you, you're a, a clingy type. We need to turn you into more of a distancer. Yeah, so it's often like a lot of people blame like the clingy type is, oh, you're just too needy. You're, you don't have enough growth or you're not independent enough. That seems like a, in our culture, like to be clingy or needy is thing to be in a relationship. Right, right. The stage it's, five clinger. <laughs> right, right, exactly. It's the bad thing. But when you look at kind of the relationship as like a system, right, as the two partners are really creating one thing together, the clingy needy behaviors are often a result of unmet needs. Yeah. But we are only as needy as our unmet needs. And so what I do with the couples, instead of kind of going, oh, well, you need to be more independent, you really need to grow up. I really go, okay, how can we start to express what you need in a way that your partner can understand you and in a way that they can commit to that? And so when I'm working with couples, I'm really helping them kind of break down their communication. And I really focus on helping them start to understand each other first before they actually start problem solving. Because typically in those relationships, they're really focused on, okay, well, I just need you to give me more affection or I just need this, but they don't understand why that's so important. And really what the person's feeling and the meaning they make of that their partner distances, which is often they don't care about me or I'm not important enough for them. And so there's a lot that happens that is never actually talked about. And what I do with the couples I work with is I help them actually put that on the table and actually start to talk about that. That's brilliant because I know for me, when I started uh, getting into more you know, serious relationships, one of the things I started noticing is, oh, I don't have the language. I don't have the language to describe. I don't know myself well enough. And so... I would be more of the silence distancing type and my partner would have to try and guess, you know, playing the guessing game of what I'm feeling or what, because I, I didn't have the language to say what I was feeling, but just sort of distance and go quiet. So it sounds like what you do, having people together, you help them get the language around who they are and what they're feeling. Yeah, totally. And it sounds like your partner was pretty patient with you and really helping you kind of what the feelings were. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, I, I guess that's pretty accurate. And it seems to me that that was probably a trend in all my friendships and relationships, you know, like that, rather than confront things and try and talk about it, it was easier just to distance. Yeah. And so, yeah, now, I mean, now I feel like I have, you know, the, the language and just having enough difficult conversations with my partner that you start to have the ability to talk about it. Right. And what it seems is so beautiful kind of about your partner and what you were able to do is you know, your partner was patient with you and able to work with you on your feelings rather than become critical or mean and cause you to withdraw even more. And it sounds like you also took it upon yourself to really kind of go, okay, I need to have these difficult conversations. How do I tolerate that discomfort? What language do I need to use? And, and that often as a distancer, they feel like, I don't know what to say. How do I respond to this? And so they just distance. Yeah. And so it's really teaching them. And when I work with kind of the distancers, I'm really teaching them the problems are actually can actually strengthen your relationship. And by working to understand your partner, working to understand your feelings, a lot of the stuff, resentment or other things that might come up actually don't. It's hard work, but it can be really rewarding work. Yeah, I totally get that. I, for me, it was about distinguishing, you know, having needs, what needs are healthy, what needs are unhealthy, 
you know, feeling guilty that I even had needs. But yeah, so, so knowing what was safe to express. But again, like you said, having those conversations and then, you know, being understood is at the core of this, right? Having somebody, preferably your partner, that really gets you and understands you and understands what your needs are, when they're not met, why you react a certain way. Like, I think that's what you mean when you say it can be a deepening of the relationship when you have that understanding. Totally. I mean, I still have conflicts with my partner and we sometimes get in these little dances where we're like, we kind of argue for a moment and then we're like, hold up, what's actually going on here? And it's like, oh, well, this means this to me, or I'm feeling this way, or, you know, this actually relates to my childhood. And a lot of times when I'm working with couples, we discover things that partners never knew about each other. You know, the significance of, oh, my dad grew up working his butt off and built this amazing legacy. And so that's what I want to do. And that's why I'm working so much. You know, and really getting to kind of the core of the person and why they're behaving the way they are. And it's when we understand each other at that deep level, that's where that real intimacy comes in. It's awesome. When we first spoke, Kyle, one of the things that interested me was you talked about this idea of kind of studying couples in a lab type environment. How did you get into that? Or can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so... um Back in, I believe, the 80s, 90s, there's a researcher called Dr. John Gottman, and he built this love lab in Seattle, which is where I live, at the University of Washington. And so what they did... Love lab. I love it. That's great. That's great. Um, They had couples come in. They hooked them up to all all these different machines that would measure their heart rate. They would measure their facial features, you know, a lot of different things. And they'd sit up in a room and they'd say, okay, what's an issue you're having a conflict on? And they'd kind of get the couple talking about the issue a little bit. And then they'd walk out of the room and video record it. And what they do then is after they record the couple, they would then go and encode the couples and say, okay, this was really negative or this is really positive. And what happened is through that research, Dr. John Gottman and his colleagues were able to find and predict why relationships succeed and why they fail. And so he's able to predict, I think it's with a 96% accuracy whether relationship will succeed based on a five or a three to five minute conversation. That's incredible. 96%. Yeah. And that's because there's certain behaviors and certain responses that when I'm in the lab that I'm coding for couples that I'm like, okay, this is really negative and it's, it's criticism, it's contempt, it's defensiveness that actually blocks communication. And so those types of behaviors block the partners from connecting and actually resolving their issues. And what we found in the Love Lab is that kind of having that really happy couples that actually last in their marriages have five positive interactions to every negative interaction, even during conflict. And so they might laugh about something. They might make a joke about something. They might ask an open-ended question. like, what does that mean to you? Or why is that so important to you? Rather than just kind of trying to prove their point, to their partner. They really listen to understand rather than listening to just reply. Yeah, that's so interesting. So maybe sometimes you can see a couple that has a lot of conflict, but it still works because maybe there's an underlying respect in the relationship. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, every, every relationship has conflict and there's actually two types of conflict. There's solvable conflict, and then there's unsolvable conflict. There's conflict that no matter what, who you love, you're going to have conflict. And what Gottman's research shows is 69% of the conflict never actually goes away. The difference between couples who have happy relationships and the couples who have unhappy relationships 
is not the problem, but how they deal or talk about the problem. Right. And what the Gottman's model is all about is, okay, you need to respect that there's two separate views to every issue. You need to learn to listen to understand each other. And you need to learn to express from your experience, talking in I statements, expressing your feelings, and expressing what the positive need you have to actually take the relationship forward in the next step. Mm. Yeah, that's really what his research highlighted. And there's a lot more to it. But I mean, it's fascinating when you sit there and you're watching these couples deal with these conversations and you have one partner who all of a sudden becomes critical and defensive and, and the other partner kind of responds in the same way. And you kind of see them going down a negative spiral. And then you watch other couples who they might go negative for a moment, but then they do what's called a repair. And they might say, I'm sorry, I, I said that. Or, you know, I'm feeling really overwhelmed about this. Can we take a pause back? Or they might even, you know, just make a really goofy look. And sometimes as silly as it might sound, that little goofy look actually repairs the conversation. Yeah. And, and going even further than that, that goofy look, the reason that partner is able to repair the conflict so well just by doing that is because they have a really strong friendship. Is because they understand each other. They are connected. And because they have that relationship, they really know each other well. They're able to repair really quickly and actually have a lot more love and respect to actually work through their issues together. Very, very interesting. Are you at the stage where you can watch a couple interact and you can see these things now in a, a more sort of uh, analytical way? Yeah. So I actually work in the lab currently. So I work in the Love Lab. They just rebuilt it. They rebuilt it last year, which just became available, I think, in March. And so I've been training all the way through that. I'm coding couples now in the lab where we'll have couples come in. And then when they leave, I'll sneak into the lab and I'll sit there and I'll code them, uh, whether they're positive or negative interactions. And it builds this really cool chart of, okay, it's positive, And then it goes negative here. And we do a whole bunch of really nerdy stuff with that. But <laughs> that helps us kind of analyze, okay, here's where your relationship is at. And it then we then break that down and say, here's the behaviors that you're doing that are actually preventing you from connecting and solving your issues. And to change your relationship, here's how you need to start behaving. You know, you need to express your feelings and needs rather than blame your partner. You need to learn how to accept influence and try to find a win-win with your partner. You know, all these different things. And that's really what the, the Love Lab is all about. It's, I mean, it's fascinating to watch kind of couples, how they interact, and then have them get the tools to start to turn their relationship around. So it's a very tailored package that they get. Totally. Wow. And is this, I mean, is using the science, does that make the result quicker than, say, traditional, I don't know, couples counseling or something like that? It does. It helps. It helps a lot. One of the things I love most about the Gottman method is they do assessments. And so usually the first three sessions they're not really doing couples therapy. They're getting into kind of like, how did you guys meet? What's the history of your relationship? Then they're going into, okay, how do you guys actually have conflict? Then they have private meetings where they're going, okay, what's your personal experience of the relationship? And then the next stage is they're actually creating an action plan of here's what we're going to work on to repair and strengthen your relationship. And so it kind of, I mean, the love lab like amplifies that up by like 10,000% because it's giving so much more data but that's really what the Gottman method does is it really takes a slower approach because it gets to more of the root problems, right? It gets to, oh, I don't feel respected or my partner never asks about my passions or doesn't care about what I'm worried about or what I'm going through. Oh, well, that's kind of important to understand, especially when we look at how you guys fight. 
And so, I mean, the, the, the assessment that the couples will take online takes at least 45 minutes. And so it's very thorough, very detailed, and it really helps kind of the therapist get a very clear idea on how to work with the couples. Is there any exciting research that you're doing now? Is there anything like any concepts or ideas that you're working on that potentially will be interesting to us? The re- So we have one of the research studies. This isn't necessarily associated with the Love Lab. Right now, we're just using it to help couples kind of get a better idea of the relationship. And then they do marathon sessions with the clinical director of the Love Lab. But one of the research studies that I'm helping out with is an infidelity study. And mm-hmm. so infidelity is really tough to, to study in relationships. And we don't have very good research on how do you actually save a marriage from infidelity or a relationship and allow it to recover and actually strengthen so it's better. And so what we're doing right now is we have therapists, both Gottman Method and non-Gottman Method therapists, who are working with couples and we're, we're having them go through this model that doctors John and Julie Gottman created to figure out how to actually turn a marriage around after an infidelity. Um, and John and Julie have done very well with this model with the couples they've worked with. I think John and Julie, they worked with a guy who had like 20 affairs, like just an amount. <laughs> and they came in and they were able to actually turn the relationship around and start to actually prevent kind of what had made the affairs happen and really actually build a relationship where that didn't happen again. Um, and so they have had some really amazing success. And so we're really studying that. How do we teach therapists to do this really well. How do we teach them to work with these couples? You know, what methods are working really well? And so we're doing a study on that right now. And it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. And yeah, it kind of makes sense that you wouldn't have much data on that. I mean, people probably main reason is most of it's secret, right? Right. I mean, it's infidelity, right? They're <laughs> or they're ashamed of it, right? And it's, it's tough. It's tough to deal with that or recover through that. And what we found, right, the partner who was betrayed, they actually can sometimes show signs of PTSD. It triggered. They feel overwhelmed. They can't sleep, right? It's really hard to have that trust shattered like that. Mm-hmm. And then the other partner, right, they feel shame. They, they struggle to express remorse, which is one of the things that's necessary to start to move through the repair process of actually repairing the relationship and starting to rebuild it. And is there any evidence of what leads to it or ways to avoid it? Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of evidence to it. And this is it's, uh, Gottman. I mean, I, I love Gottman stuff because he's done so much, but he combines kind of a few different models. His Gottman and then it's Carol Rustbolt who has done some really amazing research on what causes people to invest in relationships. What makes people to commit to relationships? So she has a lot of research. And then there's Shirley Glass, who also did a lot of research on infidelity and why partners betray each other. And what we found is it's actually a slow cascade. And so initially, right, partners aren't really connecting with each other. They're not talking about their feelings. They're not talking about their days. They're kind of withdrawing a little bit. And then kind of as you go down the cascade, right, there might be negative conflict, Partners might not be able to resolve issues. They start to get a negative story of the relationship in their head. Next thing they're doing, they start comparing their partner to other people outside of the relationship, whether that's an idealized person or another another partner of another relationship that they know or their coworker. And then where the betrayal really starts is they stop connecting with their partner and they start connecting with someone else. And so what Gottman Method does is we have what is called the Sound Relationship House, and that kind of kind of protects, it's the container of the relationship. 
And what happens is someone turns a wall of the house into a window and starts to connect with someone outside of it. And when they start doing that, that's where it starts getting them closer and they start to they have the emotional affair and then they might have the actual sexual affair. And then they might even get to a point where they want to leave their partner and a whole bunch of other issues come up. But it's, yeah, it's, there's a, a very realistic cascade that Gottman has kind of indicated that leads to that. Yeah, really interesting. It reminds me of, I used to be a, an airline pilot and we had a lot of the, the research into accidents said that there are a lot of steps leading up to an accident. So an accident does, doesn't occur because of one thing. It's usually a bunch of systematic errors that you can trace back, you know, maybe even weeks prior to the accident. Um, and if you can step in at any of those points, you know, if you can have checklists or systems or whatever to step in, you can prevent those accidents. So it sounds like the awareness would be that, oh, when I notice myself, I'm starting to compare other people. I'm starting to look out the window. I'm starting to, oh, this is a sign that if I don't stop this, if something doesn't happen here, this is going to lead to bad places. Totally. I call it a choice point. You're in this place where you have a choice to start to connect with someone outside. Or you have a choice to own up to what's going on in the relationship and say, honey, we're having problems and we need to work on this. Mm. And for some people, that's really hard, but that's where the relationship is going to change. Um, or even couples that feel like they're starting to have disconnections or issues. Another thing that's really interesting on the research is couples often wait, wait six years to get the help they need. So they've had wow. six years before they actually start to get the help they actually need to improve their relationship. And what I think a lot of us, particularly the Gottman Institute or Emotionally Focused Couples Therapy, we're trying to get couples start to be more proactive. We're starting to teach them, trying to teach them the skills to really improve the relationship before it gets to that point. Um, because when it, after six years of having issues, there's a lot of negativity. And, you know, much harder to turn around rather than, oh, we've had issues for six months. We haven't been able to resolve them. We need some help. You know, let's go to a workshop. Let's read a book together. Let's work on that stuff. That mm. right, being more proactive is way safer than actually, you know, waiting it out and seeing what the end result is. And that again comes back to a choice point of, okay, how do I learn how to talk about this? What is my role in creating this conflict? You know, what is my view of conflict? And how do I start to turn towards my partner and connect with them so we can actually work through this? And that's the hard work, but that's again, right? If you can start to learn that stuff. That's where your relationship is actually going to get stronger. Yeah, I love the six years. I mean, you know, my analytical brain gets so excited by having data and numbers because relationship, you know, traditionally is just so, yeah. we don't look at it that way, right? So it's cool to have data. But the six-year thing also speaks to how pernicious some of these things can be, how like day-to-day maybe we don't notice a relationship degrading, you know, and it's only after a long period we look and go, wow, we really, you know, what's happening? Right, um, yeah, and I mean, we have these little moments where things, we don't connect or we miss each other, which is pretty common. And, you know, a few of them missed isn't a big deal. Sometimes there's meaningful ones that are missed that are a big deal, and then we hold it in our head, right? And, and I always use the analogy of like a waiter, right? If you've ever been to a restaurant with a waiter who takes your order without writing it down, they will take your order and then they'll deliver it and they'll completely forget your order. The same thing happens with us and our memories, right? If we have an issue from our relationship, that hasn't been resolved, that hasn't been delivered, hasn't been completed, we'll remember in our heads and it'll replay and replay. And so that's one of the things that's really important is if there's that kind of thing going on, you got to start to work on, hey, we got to repair this old issue. And so, yeah, I mean, having that data and having that information is so helpful. Yeah, brilliant. If we're looking at, say, someone that's going to get in a relationship. So me, for example, I'm single. 
potentially looking for you know a new relationship what should i be focusing on before getting into a relationship that's a great question really focus on how what are your styles right how do you emotionally connect right are you asking questions are you really asking you know we have two types of questions there's uh, closed-end questions, which are just get you a yes or no response. And then there's open-ended questions, which are really exploratory. They get your partner to open up. And so really learning of, okay, how do I ask more open-ended questions to get more, to learn more about my partner? And then the next thing is learning your conflict style. Do you withdraw? Do you get angry so your partner shuts down and doesn't deal with the issue, right? Which ultimately, while, yeah, that might solve temporary discomfort, it causes a bigger problem in the end. And so learning, okay, how do I become better at conflict? How do I express my needs? You know, and learning, really coming to learn more about yourself. And I think that's really the first step to starting to, to not only find that secure relationship, but actually create that as well. And what the research shows from, not from the Gottman method, but from other ones, is when you start to be more secure and start to express your needs and start to be more, you really hold your needs and value them, you're actually going to find people who do the same. Right. Yeah, I noticed that as much as, you know, personal development work I do on myself that sometimes you get into a relationship and then it, you know, you're like, oh shit, it all hits you once you're in the relationship. Is that Mike Tyson quote that says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Totally. You know, it's the kind of thing like you can do all this work and you think, okay, I'm ready for a relationship. And then you get into it and you're like, oh God, okay. Right. I got way more work to do. And that's the part that I think a lot of us, we get overwhelmed and then we shut down or we become critical. And that's the point where we go, where it, that's the challenge where we should be becoming more vulnerable. And that's where I love Brene Brown's work, where she says, like, vulnerability is the first thing I look for in you and the last thing I'm going to show you. And so when that conflict stuff comes up, you know, and you're frustrated, you don't know what to do, actually just acknowledge that. You know, honey, I am so overwhelmed with this. I don't know how to deal with this issue. What do we do about this? Right. That's going to work a lot better and actually get you closer than blaming your partner or completely withdrawing or trying to pretend it isn't an issue. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, to go further on that. So if I'm in a new relationship, just starting out and, you know, maybe that vulnerability and that intimacy isn't quite there yet, what do you say to a new couple? My thing is, you know, I think the vulnerability, right, to take that risk is the, is the fastest way to really create that connection. And that's, again, it goes back to expressing your needs. And yeah, right. I kind of view intimacy almost like a hot tub, right? You don't jump right in, you know, because then it's too hot or you get, your body gets shocked. So you kind of mm. want to warm into it. But you also want to continually go deeper and deeper. And so that is to express your needs and, and really say, hey, you know, this is really meaningful to me. And to acknowledge that rather than suppress it or bottle it up and then have it blow up in, in other ways that aren't as productive. And then so I guess the, the next scenario is how do I know when it's time to end a relationship? So how do I know when, and maybe it's, it's not a, an easy question to answer, but uh, how do I know whether I need to do more work or I need to look at myself and yeah, work harder on myself as opposed to, okay, I think I've done all I can. I don't think this person is right for me or I don't think this relationship is right for me. Yeah. I mean, my when I'm working with couples, my goal is always to get them to look at themselves. How are you contributing to the the dynamics that are happening in your relationships? You know, are you are you negatively coaching your partner to be more emotional? Are you withdrawing? Are you accepting what makes your partner happy, but not admitting what you need to be happy in the relationship, which then makes you resentful, right? So I really have them look at that first. And then, right, kind of from there, it's looking at, okay, if I do my personal work, my role in the relationship, and I take responsibility for my end, 
is my partner going to step up and take responsibility for their side of the relationship? And that's also really another really tough spot that a lot of us struggle with, right? Especially people who are anxious, they often overfunction in the relationship and they kind of do more of the work to try to make it work. And the other partner just gets to coast along and say, this is great. And then when they enter into kind of couples therapy or they're working on their relationship, right? They start to pull back and that system and their relationship changes. And they actually get, they, they really struggle to go, oh my gosh, well, I'm so used to chasing after my partner. I'm so used to, you know, trying to get them to connect with me, making the dates, making the vacations, making these efforts. And now I'm being asked not to. And you're giving your partner the space to actually show up and see if they're actually going to commit and change the relationship. And that's a really hard stage for both partners, but particularly for the partner who has done most of the work trying to make the relationship work. And that's where you start to look at the relationship and go, okay, if this person isn't going to commit to me, if this person is not going to make my needs valuable, if this person is not going to honor me and honor themselves and put the relationship first, then I don't know if this is a relationship I want to stay in. And another thing that's really important, right, if there's any verbal abuse or, or aggressiveness or physical abuse, those are all reasons to get out of a relationship. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. The people that work with you or even just the data that you see, you know, if someone comes and does work on themselves or on the relationship, do you think most relationships have a chance if we are willing to do the work or more of a chance? Yeah. So that's some of the, that's what's interesting. Again, right. You're coming back to that dynamic. You have two separate people. And Mm. so if both partners do the work, it's amazing. I mean, it's truly amazing. I mean, I, I met with a couple I worked with two years ago and they're, they said their marriage is better than they ever imagined it. And like having that reward for me, that's just a reward. Like just love having that. We're hearing other couples that I meet with that I worked with them, you know, six months ago or a year ago and same thing. But you also get the couples who just one partner does all the work and the other one's just like, no, he's the one to blame or she's the one to blame. <laughs> and they don't do their side. And that's it's just too much to look at themselves. Right. It's that or they just, you know, it's hard work. It's, you know, they have to confront their own shame, their own vulnerability, their own needs. Right. It's hard facing that stuff, which I totally get. But they don't they aren't willing to take the steps to commit to that. And that's where it's really tough to save a relationship. And, and I think one of the things a lot of people think about coaching or therapy is that it's the therapist's job to save the relationship. I don't believe mm-hmm. that. I think it's the couple's job to save the relationship. My job is to give them the tools and a way to communicate about the relationship. And with couples who are divorcing or breaking up and have made that decision, my goal is to get them to actually discuss about what happened so that doesn't happen again in their relationship. And so if they can change their part. And sometimes that actually saves the relationship. Other times, partners have so much negativity. They can't stand each other. There's so many other things going on that they're just not willing to do the work. And unfortunately, there's not much I can do when someone's not willing to take their risk to start to change the relationship or do the work that's necessary to have the difficult conversations, as you put it, to actually turn things around. Yeah, no, that's great. That's a good, good analysis. Carl, this has been brilliant. I've really enjoyed geeking out on the data of relationships and stuff like that. So thank you. Uh, I'm going to ask you about your dark side in the moment, give you a chance to be vulnerable. (laughs) Uh, But before that, how how do people work with you? Obviously, we're on Facebook now, so people can probably message you or add you on Facebook. What are the other ways to find you? Most people find me through my website, kylebenson.net. So I have a lot of followers there. There's a contact form. 
Usually people subscribe to my email and then they'll reach out through that way. That's usually how I get started with most of the people I work with. Cool. So kylebenson.net and uh, what can people that subscribe to your email expect? Oh, a lot of goodies. So I actually have what I call a passionate relationship toolkit. So it deals with the conflict. It deals with expressing your feelings. I have what is called the Intimacy 5 Challenge. And it's a really intimate challenge where you're doing exercises that are actually really tough, but experimenting with those. And, and I, I always talk about intimacy is into me, I let you see. And so it's really creating that window into yourself and also that window in your partner. And that's scary and hard. A lot of people talk about intimacy as, oh, it's this easy thing. We have sex, we do this stuff. No, intimacy is so freaking hard. And that's what I allow the couples to experience is I allow them to do these exercises and actually acknowledge that it's really hard to stare into each other's eyes or it's really mm-hmm. hard to hug each other for a few moments and notice our anxiety in our bodies or our desire to disconnect and kind of play with that and experiment with that. And so those are some of the things that my subscribers get. Yeah, very cool. Very, very cool. A lot of free goodies. Uh, that's great. Thank you, Carl. And so, yeah, the last question is really about your dark side. It's just something we ask every guest that comes on the show because not many people talk about it. So is there, and maybe you can use relationships just to keep it on theme, but is there a dark side that you struggle with or that you uh, are trying to embrace? I think a dark side, the one that's come into mind in terms of my relationship is I have had a tendency to hide my needs and particularly one of the, one of the unsolvable issues my partner and I have is around our house. I'm very tidy and organized, or I like to be very tidy and organized. She's kind of the opposite. And so we have a recurring conflict about that quite often. Not quite often, but it pops up maybe once every few months. And one of my patterns that I've really been working on is kind of expressing my, my feelings and not being resentful. Because when you get into the recurring conflict, because it comes up so often, you often want to shut down or you bottle stuff up. You kind of feel this helplessness with it. And so kind of really talking about that and expressing that. And so that's one of the things I've been leaning into. And around that, also just allowing me to only take my role in the relationship. As I talked about, right, the overfunctioners, that is me. And that has been me. And one of the things I've been doing for the past few years, before I even started this work, is really focusing on how do I take care of my role and give my partner the space to show up and do her part. And that's hard for me, especially when it's something I don't like or something that I don't agree with. She's doing the way I would do it or it's not on the timeline that I want. And so I notice myself, I might get reactive for a moment or I might have to go kind of calm down and then actually talk about it. Or sometimes I, one of the things I've really been doing is actually staying quiet about it for a little bit and then waiting a few days and seeing what happens. And what I love about my partners, because we have talked about this, she is aware of it, is it does eventually get done. It's still hard for me because it's not on my timeline, which I think everyone struggles with, but that is definitely one of the things that I've had to lean into and what I, what I love about doing that experiment within my relationship is I've also come to learn to trust my partner a lot more um, because I've given her the space to do things her way mm. that also meet my criteria of what I need in the relationship. And by her showing up, by her getting the space to show up in her own way, that also meets my needs. It has built a, built a much deeper relationship, much more trust and much more connection. And I, like I would say, that was hard for me to do initially. And it's still hard at times. So I would say that's definitely my dark side that I've continued to try to lean into and work within my relationship. And just give a turn around and go, I wonder if all of your clients could see you now 
<laughs> Mr. Relationship Expert. <laughs> yeah, and that's and totally, and that's some of the things, right? And I, I tell her all the time, I'm not a relationship expert. I'm, I have faults too. I'm human, right? I don't know all this stuff. I'm not, and even John Gottman, who's done this for 40 plus years, he has to use his own tools. We, as couples therapists, a lot of people or couples coaches, a lot of people think, oh, you're the expert, so you must do everything perfectly. Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we have the same struggles, we have these same issues, and and we have to go through kind of the same process. I mean, I use all the tools I use with my couples, and a lot of the couples they kind of go, "Are you you actually use this still?" Totally, I have to. You know, I so meet with my partner once a week to check in and go, "Okay, what's going on in our relationship, and what do we need to improve? What are yeah. our issues?" And by doing that, we're making any problem that might be bigger or things that we don't talk about much easier to actually talk about. And we typically don't have as many issues later on because we're actually creating the space to deal with our problems proactively rather than reactively. Awesome. Thank you, Carl. This has been great. Really enjoyed this. Hope you'll uh, come back again and, and give us an update on some of the stuff you're working on because it's, it's really interesting fun. stuff. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. There you go, my friends. My wonderful conversation with Kyle Benson. Look up Kyle on his website, kylebenson.com. And as always, share the episode around. I think this would be a great one to share if you know any couples that might be struggling or someone that you think uh, could use the inspiration in their relationship. Flick it on to them, my email, message them, and let them know that this is available. And hopefully, we can use this message to help people and spread some good. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. Uh, I love you guys. Don't forget to share the episode around. And I'll be back next week for episode 57 of the Nathan Seward Show. That was the Nathan Seward Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. This episode has been brought to you by my friends at Unsettled. Unsettled is a 30-day co-working retreat experience for entrepreneurs, creatives, freelancers, and folks going through intentional transitions. They have incredible retreats all around the world, Portugal, Bali, Colombia, Nicaragua, just to name a few. I did Medellin in Colombia last year, blew my mind. A great bunch of people there, lots of really cool local experiences, beautiful office to work from, a lovely apartment. They organize it all, guys. So go to beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and I'm going to get $100 off your first trip. So do yourself a favor, check out beunsettled.co slash Nathan.